0: From Brick in downtown Brooklyn, I'm Mackenzie Fagan, and this is Glitter and Doom. If you're joining us for the first time, the Doom part of the show is the usual suspects. Racism, sexism, homophobia, systemic inequality, climate change, all the fun stuff. The glitter? Each week I'll be talking to artists or cultural creators who are fighting back through their work. And we'll be taking a few detours along the way. Late last year, you couldn't turn on the news without hearing about the caravan, the name the media used to describe the roughly 4,000 men, women, and children moving in groups big and small from Central America across Mexico to the U.S. border. Caravan. While a traditional reading of the word might evoke kaftan merchants traveling together on camelback through hostile deserts, a more contemporary usage brings to mind a joyous carnival, or a lovable but unwashed group of friends heading to the Glastonbury Festival. In either case, the word describes a mass, a collective noun, a hashtag squad. Calling these Roughly 4,000 people, simply the caravan, made it harder for us to view them as individual humans with individual human reasons for undertaking a dangerous journey. Which is why the film Midnight Traveler is so urgent. It follows a family of refugees, not from Central America, but from Afghanistan, as they make the harrowing trek to the EU, seeking asylum. What sets this documentary apart is that the director of the film is also its protagonist. It personalizes the issue of migration in a way that is all too unusual today. We, of course, wanted to have the director of the film, Hassan Fazali, on the show, but unfortunately, he is not free to travel to the United States. But we were pleased to welcome two members of the film's creative team, Emily Medavian and Sue Kim. Well, I wanted to thank you guys for joining me today. Emily Medavian, Sue Kim, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having us. (laughs) So, you have a film called Midnight Traveler that is out in theaters now. Um, You were both producers on it, and Emily, you also wrote and edited it. Is
1: that right? Mm -hmm. Tell me a little bit broad strokes about the film. Um, So, the film is about an Afghan family Hassan Fazali, who's a filmmaker, his wife Fatima, who's also a filmmaker, and their two daughters. And they find themselves in the position of having to travel the migrant smuggling route to Europe when the Taliban puts a price on his head. So the film opens with the family in Tajikistan. Why do they find themselves there? So um, Hassan, like I said, was a filmmaker. His wife was an actress on Afghan television. And he was hired on a project where he made a documentary that profiled Taliban fighters who laid down arms. And after it aired... The Taliban assassinated the main subject of the film, and um, he was just extremely fortunate through a friend that he heard that he was also next on that hit list.
0: Why do they flee to Tajikistan, and what do they do once they're there?
1: Well, Tajikistan is a Persian-speaking country, so for um, a Dari-speaking Afghan, it's a common language, and it's a safe country relatively. Um, you know, Afghanistan is landlocked, so you have limited options. And from where they lived, that was the best place to get to quickly and to get a visa to enter quickly. Sue, I want to ask you, how did you become involved in this project?
2: Um, so I saw the material and what really drew me to it was the fact that it was um, from this like perspective of the people who were actually going through the journey. Um, most of these kind of images are um, from outsiders. so So this sort of being so personal was... Deeply affecting, you know, you could really relate to the family and what they're going through, and their little girls, and you, you wonder yourself like, what would I do if I was in this situation?
0: You do feel a real intimacy with the family mm-hmm. because it's shot first person, and because you are in small enclosed spaces with them so often, mm. um, it is entirely unlike any other film that I've seen that has a more journalistic or third mm-hmm. person lens the film is shot on cell phone. Um, Tell me a little bit about that process. What was he using? And why did Hassan decide that he wanted to do this while his family was fleeing?
1: Well, so it was shot on three cell phones because he and his wife and his older daughter were all um, filming. So it's actually multi-perspectival. It's the whole family filming together and filming each other. And the cell phones were really just a necessity of the situation that they were in. There wasn't you know, any way that they could have done it with professional cameras. The reason for doing it was really because that's who they were. They're filmmakers. They wanted to document what was happening to them, uh, you know, in their life. And they felt that this was uh, something meaningful that they could do to uh, transform their own situation when... Nothing else in their life was under their control.
0: Was there an end goal in mind? Were they thinking, at the end, we're going to have a feature film that we're going to submit to Sundance? Or was mm. it just more, we're going to document this as we go along for posterity?
1: Initially, it was really just about documenting it for whatever it would turn out to be. And, and when I talked to them about it, you know, we, we knew that we were maybe trying to make something. Um, would it be a short film? Would it be a sort of episodic piece? We didn't know how large the story would turn out to be.
0: And so at what point did you come into the mix, and how did you connect with the filmmakers?
1: So um, I wrote my dissertation on Tajikistan and filmmaking during and after the Tajik Civil War, and I had made a film in Tajikistan, so I connected with them through that community, and I came on board uh, from the beginning.
0: And do you speak Dari?
1: Yeah. so I'm a Persian speaker, so we did all that work in Persian.
0: And so you met them when they were in Tajikistan— applying for asylum to other countries, Mm -hmm. Um, they were rejected. Mm -hmm. Do we know why?
1: Yeah, Um, mostly. I mean, it's a complicated system where um, a refugee and an asylum seeker are not the same thing. A migrant is a third category. And it's possible to kind of fall between the cracks of those systems, basically. Tajikistan is a country that had passed a bunch of anti-refugee, Laws that limited the ability of international organizations or other countries to provide um, support or uh, aid to people from within Tajikistan
0: so even if you had a valid claim like the Fazelius did, if you were applying from within Tajikistan because of bureaucracy, your application was unlikely to be accepted
1: It was yeah, there was various extreme limitations that were placed on <laughs> what kind of support you could receive um, so they did, have the identical case at the beginning of the film that they have at the end of the film. And you see that from one physical location, that meant that they couldn't receive protection, and from another they could, in the interim, was this extremely traumatic journey.
0: So they were aware that if they wanted to increase their chances of being accepted as asylum seekers, that they would physically have to go to the EU. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, here we are at Brooklyn Defender Services.
3: Um, thank you so much for talking to me today. Of course. What is your name and where do you work? My name is Michelle Quintero Millan and I'm a, an attorney here at BDS. I work on the, one of the immigration teams. I work in the Knife program, which is a program that provides uh, pro bono legal representation to immigrants who are detained and who are in removal proceedings. Can you tell me what the difference is between a refugee, an asylum seeker, and a migrant? Refugees are s- often someone who has fled their country of nationality or the place that they were born and they're seeking some sort of of protection once they apply for asylum they wouldn't be considered in that refugee definition and migrants i think is like the broadest of all of these definitions because refugees can also be migrants and some migrants are refugees but there's some migrants who maybe they didn't flee because they were physically harmed, or there was a a persecution, but there were other factors that motivated them to leave or pushed them or pulled them. So you might be
0: a refugee and also a migrant, and then at some point you may become an asylum seeker. Right. So if somebody has a valid asylum claim, Would they be treated differently if they were applying in their country of origin as opposed to in person in the country that they would like to
3: resettle in? So very few people would be able to apply living in their country of origin. Normally you have to leave your country and once that happens and you've left your country on account of one of these protected grounds, something happened, only then would you be considered a refugee. Who does this process work well for? Um, I'm not sure the process really works well for anyone. Are there people who might have an advantage though? Uh, people who are more educated, who have more access to resources, people who have grown up in a system where documentation is is very valued. Um, say, for example, if You've never been to school. You have no formal education whatsoever. And your ability to remember when events happened, often our ability to remember those things is because we tie them to, I was in second grade, or um, that happened when I graduated from this. But what if you're in a place where you've never been to school, so your ability to remember when things happened may not be in the same way. If you don't remember that, is that because you're lying?
0: You were a refugee officer for the United States government? I was. So did you travel to other countries to interview asylum seekers?
3: Yes, I did. One particular kid that I interviewed when I was in El Salvador, he was deaf-mute and only knew home sign. And so in order to do an interview, you would have to have someone from the family that knew his home sign. And when you say home sign, you mean that this is just
0: within the family they've devised a system of communication?
3: Yes, yes. And so it's like having to create, they create words through different signs as, as you go along. I relied on the, the person that was there to interpret, but um, I drew a lot of things. Asylum is very complicated. If you're asking someone if they're afraid, if they've been threatened, harmed, things like that have happened in their family, even if they're able to express that, the reason why someone has been harmed or threatened is of vital importance to refugee and asylum law only kids who met the refugee definition would be able to come to the United States. And so in his case, I couldn't, I was trying to do my best, but I couldn't get there with the way that I was able to communicate with him.
0: In all of the debate about who should be allowed to come to this country, who's documented, who's undocumented, what do we do about it, what do you think is lost?
3: If your family was suffering the same sort of harm that families in many countries are suffering you would do everything possible to get your family out of that situation there's reasons why people take this journey and take all this risk Um, if you just think about uh, what i I guess it's hard to put yourself in that situation if you haven't been in that Um, in those circumstances i think people are almost numb to it so i don't I'm worried about what is what is going to happen next.
2: Where do they go from Tajikistan? To uh, <laughs> back to Afghanistan, mm-hmm. then to Iran, and then to Turkey. From Turkey to Bulgaria, mm-hmm. from Bulgaria to Serbia, Serbia to Hungary, and currently they're in Germany.
0: I mean the part that is really shocking as a viewer is that you see the passage of time through the girls, Mm -hmm. particularly Zara, the younger, who starts out basically as a baby and by the end is like, I don't know, four or five? It's just a real physical manifestation of how long their journey takes. Um, The longest chunk is when they're in a refugee camp in Serbia. Is that right?
1: What are they waiting for? In Serbia, they were waiting for their names to come up on a list that would allow them to go to Hungary and... Um, put in an application to the Hungarian government. And there's a lot of people on that list. And some of the people end up leaving the list and trying smuggling routes through other countries. But the the legal route is, is to wait for your name to come up. And in that case, it was 14 months.
0: And why was Hungary the end goal in that case?
1: Well, Hungary is uh, the edge of the Schengen zone of the EU. So in Serbia, they're not inside the EU, and in Hungary, they are. Mm -hmm. So
0: you knew of Hassan's um, idea about making a film from this voyage before he set off. Mm -hmm. How did you guys work together? How did you stay in touch while he was sleeping in the forests of, of Turkey trying to cross the border? And how did he get footage to you?
1: Mobile phones are remarkable. They have reception all over. Um, The footage, I just arranged people to meet them and copy the footage off of their media cards onto hard drives and mail the hard drives to me so that I could keep the footage safe while they were traveling.
0: It's so confounding to me that you're able to move the information, the actual footage, the cuts back and forth so freely. And meanwhile, you're watching This incredibly arduous physical journey that people are making and Mm -hmm. these borders that are not porous
1: um, that the the footage is able to go places that they're not
0: hi what's your name Levi Levi um, I'm in the market for a cell phone but I have some pretty specific needs so I'm wondering if you might be able to help me find the right cell phone for me sure Okay, so first of all, I'm a filmmaker, so I'm looking for a phone that's going to shoot like pretty good video quality.
4: I would suggest the Note 10 series, which recently came out. Basically, what they did was like they made like a mini computer, so you'll be able to uh, record those videos in the best uh, high definition as possible. And you'll also be able to edit them on your phone, so you wouldn't need to use a uh, laptop or anything.
0: Oh, that's really cool. Um, all right, my second question is um, I'm also going to be using the phone on an international trip. Um, so I'm going to be going through like eight countries.
4: We have in our plans, it's $90, and you get unlimited talk text here while you're in the U.S. And then when you leave, you get international calling. So it'll be anywhere from a minute to 25 cents per minute to call. Your text will be free, and you'll have data while you're abroad.
0: Okay, and does your network cover like that part of the world, Afghanistan, Iran, Turkey, mm-hmm. And if you
4: go on the Bulgaria. website, um, it will tell you all the countries that T Mobile covers. So, over like 200 plus countries that we cover. But if you want to be sure, you just go on the website and it will tell you all the countries that's covered for the um, international.
0: Okay, cool. Um, all right, the next part is that on this trip, I'm not totally sure where I'm going to be staying exactly yet. So, um, I need to work that, but there's like a chance that I might be sleeping, like, like sort of like camping. Um, so like outside, and there might be long stretches of time where I may not have reliable access to electricity. So battery life, also going to be really important.
4: Plus has a really great battery, um, and so the phone has a smart battery. So once you start using the phone often, it will start to minimize the battery to go along with how you use the phone. In the day, it will uh, make sure the battery is uh, good for when it comes to the nighttime.
0: And then the last question is, um, I need a phone that's pretty rugged as well because um, in addition to the camping, I might be doing some things like, like sort of like adventure sports, like there might be water involved. I might be-
4: Water resistant. Okay. I would always suggest to get a case and a screen protector because, you know, modern-day phones, it's all glass. So you're not going to really get that heavy-duty protection where, like, if you don't have a case and a screen protector, it falls, you would have a possibility it breaks, but as long as you have a good case and a screen protector, you'll be fine.
0: Okay, so it's water-resistant, you said, and if I'm, like, running, like, climbing walls, running away from people, like, that's going to be you're fine.
4: You just get a case and a screen protector, you get insurance on the phone, and if your screen protector breaks, T-Mobile will uh, exchange it for for free. Really? As long as you got the insurance and you purchased it with T-Mobile.
0: Okay. Cool. That's all my questions. Thank you so much. I really You're appreciate welcome. your help. No problem. Did you have a sense of how you would know when you were done? I mean, this took three years, right, from the beginning of the story. Mm-hmm. Um, it ends, we should say, with their asylum claim being accepted. Mm-hmm. But were there points along the way where you were like, this could go on forever. We should just
2: end the story now. There was a, a, some degree of urgency in getting the story like, completed and having the film released as soon as possible. At the, towards the end of our edit, they, they were in Hungary. And when we saw that footage,
1: it was like a very clear stopping place. Because, of course, the refugee story um, or the asylum seeker story or the mm-hmm. migrant story goes on for years if you wanted to follow something to its conclusion you could still be filming this story because Mm -hmm. these are stories that have long long end lives
0: the film premiered at sundance Mm
1: -hmm.
0: was the family able to
2: come to the premiere no no they were not able to come to the premiere with an open case it's really difficult to travel
0: with the fact that hassan and his family can't travel how do you guys think about being the spokespeople for this film. Do you feel
1: certain responsibilities knowing that you have to speak for him in many cases? Well, that's awkward, I think, because part of what the film is trying to do is allow the family to speak for themselves. So part of what we have to do is try to let the film do its own work and then frame what the film does for people or talk about, answer their questions about how it was done. and um, But we don't want to be speaking... For the families, you know, so it's it's a little bit strange because it puts us in a position that is exactly what the film itself is trying to avoid doing. It must
0: have been surreal. I mean, right. This premiered when the caravan was happening. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we have a parallel situation here in the U.S. What do you hope that Americans are thinking about when they watch Midnight Traveler?
1: We feel like there's this very heightened rhetoric, either very pro or very anti um, refugees and immigrants. And we're hoping that the film is a film that kind of uh, creates a space to set that aside and be with this family over this long journey and ask yourself what you would do in this circumstance. And then maybe afterwards, there's a conversation that you can have with your family or within your community about About these wider issues that the film is framed within, but that for that 87 minutes, you're with this one family on their journey.
0: Mm -hmm. I'm curious about if it has changed the way you think about borders Hmm. at all working on this film.
2: I think it's a yes and no question. I think there needs to be some way of regulating something. But I do think that what what the real issue is, is that I think there's no protection for people who who are in these very difficult situations.
1: I think a lot of the conversation is around, should there be borders or should there not be borders? And when I'm talking about like creating space for another conversation, mm-hmm. it's in part to get around that. Because here you have a family that gets a visa to legally go to Tajikistan and then does everything they can, puts in 50 applications to all these different places with a totally valid asylum claim saying, please someone help us, and finds themselves forced onto a migrant route, um, forced to put their kids through this terrible trauma um, You know, in the hands of smugglers who are pretty unscrupulous and some pretty terrible things happen to them. I think... We see how broken that bureaucratic system is and how much trauma the system itself is inflicting on people who were trying to use the system in a, in a legal way. So aside from borders are not borders, I mean, we see that at some kind of human level, the system is um, just really damaging the people that are, are trying to access basic safety.
0: Let's talk about borders. For the family and midnight traveler, borders stand between them and safety. But are they real? A social construct? Are some borders more real than others, like the squiggly border between Missouri and Illinois that follows the Mississippi River and looks like an outie belly button? Is that somehow more legitimate than the ruler straight border between Colorado and Utah? And if the river were to change course, does the border change with it? All this is to say that borders seem like a pretty arbitrary thing. Snakes don't have to stop at borders to show their passports, which is lucky because they don't have hands. And birds flying overhead don't know when they've crossed into another country. Oh, except for vultures who live on the Iberian Peninsula. Hey, buddy. Okay. According to a study published in the March 2018 issue of Biological Conservation, scientists observed something very odd about vultures who were tagged and monitored along the Portuguese-Spanish border. They almost never crossed into Portugal. In fact, of the locations that were logged by scientists, 95% were in Spain and roughly 5% of them were in Portugal. So, if there isn't some invisible yet impenetrable wall extending 30,000 feet into the sky, why do the vultures opt to be Spanish Muitre. instead of Portuguese? Muitre. The answer lies in the exciting and sexy fields of sanitation policy and livestock management. In the late 1990s, bovine spongiform encephalopathy, also known as mad cow disease, was making headlines. In an attempt to curb the spread of the disease, in 2001, the European Union mandated that dead cows had to be swiftly removed from the fields and incinerated. But they rolled back this legislation in 2011, and Spain, partially in order to protect its buitre, once again allowed livestock carcasses to be left in the open. Meanwhile, Portugal is still following the guidelines of the 2001 legislation. So while borders may be as much a social construct as gender, the bureaucracy around borders makes them very, very real to birds and humans alike. You see the family in some of these incredibly vulnerable positions. And I'm thinking of the scene where a smuggler comes and says that unless they give him more money, he's going to kidnap their daughters. Mm -hmm. Um, Those moments are contrasted with clips that feel like home videos. How did you, as an editor, how did you strike that balance?
1: Well, that was really about looking at what the footage was and trying to work with what the footage was and recognizing that what the family was documenting was a harrowing journey, but it was also their story. And part of their story was that their kids were growing up and they are people who have a sense of humor and they are people who wanted to still have joy in their lives. And so it wouldn't have been true to their story to create a film about people who were just constant victims for three years. It was much more true to who they were and to what the story was to include this lightness and um, to show that they were doing everything they could to maintain a sense of agency, to maintain a sense of, um, of humanity and normalcy in the midst of that.
2: What was really beautiful was to see these two little girls growing up, you know, in this like very terrible situation. And um, I think um, Nagus is a very special young lady. One of the times when we're first introduced to her, she's in Turkey and the water is coming up and she says the water is angry. Mm. And and she's just so delighted by the fact that, you know, this water is like hitting her feet. This is what this film is about, is like seeing that and like seeing, you know, how how she's growing up.
0: Mm. It's such a beautiful scene and so poignant, too, because Mm -hmm. if you took that scene out of context, that would just be another home video, Mm -hmm. somebody's post on Instagram, but viewed within the context of the rest of the film. It's so heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Tell me about the sound design and the score of the film.
2: It was a a challenging thing to do because cell phone sound sounds like cell phone sound. (laughs) And so that's where, like, the music, the composition came in really um to kind of heighten that sense of like place and also of experience and our composer Gretchen Jude was really she was very deliberate and she had a method for sort of dealing with the music and I, she had listened to all the cars that they were in and she pulled chords from that yeah. and and that pulled chords from the, the cars the sounds of the cars yes. or music yeah. that's
1: on in the cars no 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 the, the sound engine. She pitched the engines of each of the cars that they rode in, and she used those pitches to build a chord that's the basis of the film score.
0: Hi, is this Gretchen Jude? Hi, yeah. Good morning, or good evening. (laughs) Good morning. Yes, you're in Tokyo. Yeah,
5: so I'm actually in Yokohama um, at Yokohama National University, um, just as a research fellow here.
0: So in addition to being an academic, you are actually a, a composer as well.
5: Yeah, I mean, I'm a composer, performer, improviser.
0: I talked to Sue and Emily, and they mentioned that you took the sounds that were recorded by the filmmakers and used some of those sounds specifically pertaining to car engines as building blocks <laughs> for the score. Is that right?
5: Yeah, yeah. I think the the term we thought of was like, what uh, that I, I came up to was like, um, what's the fundamental frequency of this film? What's the basic, like, underlying tone or tonality of the, of the, the spaces that they go through, um, the machines that they're, they're subjected to? And then that, of course, also sort of becomes metaphorical very quickly. Um, and then, you know, as, as I listened to those machines and the cars and all that stuff, I also lis- heard these little snippets of Fatima and um, Nargis. There's little singing, and so I was like, wow, you know, the tenderness of their, of their voices in the midst of these grinding machines that are all these, you know, these droning kind of heavy pitches, I would just listen to, okay, there's, the, there's this car or whatever that they're in, and I would kind of hum along with it and then use a pitch, you know, like a pitch detector to figure out what that pitch was and um, go from there.
0: Can you play me an example of that process? So,
5: like the a basic one that I might use is this audio called E Loop. So I'll play that a little bit. So the kind of whispery quality of somebody singing to themselves, along with that sort of click that it it indicates that it just they're in sort of some kind of stasis it's not really a natural naturalistic sound even though it has some kind of a visceral quality I think that's what I was going for with that in the car scene where um, Fosley is reflecting back on his friend who had joined the Taliban this is the original voice sound mm. The name of that file is B-flat long fade.
0: So how would you use one of those tones that, um, th- that you just played us? Right.
5: So this is a pitch shifted down to create that really rough bass that you hear in that scene where he's in the car and reflecting back. So I took basically a little tiny clip of the B-flat long fade and looped it and pitch shifted it down, I think two octaves. So it doesn't sound like a voice at all. It just sounds like a really crunchy, grinding kind of pulse that, um, you know, when I, I, I use several of those to sort of create a ominous melody that goes, you know, very low underneath his voiceover and, um, and the sort of you know, the remembered horror of that scene, of those scenes as an electronic musician and as a sort of experimental electronic musician who I really, you know, love noise. And I, I want people to not be afraid of, of sounds that aren't song-like. I feel a little guilty because there is still this way that I used, uh, electronic noise in this film to, to really represent the sort of chaos. And I still have the little mixed feelings. So something like basically like this. Or like this one.
0: I mean, it sets your teeth on edge, and I don't want to be disparaging to uh, your noises, but you feel like maybe you're betraying noise artists by using those noises to reinforce unpleasant scenes. Is that what you were saying? When you
5: say it out loud so directly, I'm like, well, maybe I'm being over melodramatic because it really does. It sets my teeth on edge. I'm like, and that's exactly the power of it, and why it should be in that scene. But, um,
0: yeah. I understand that, though. Yeah, I understand the desire to push back against the idea that we need to have pretty melodies in order to take us on on a, a sonic journey through a film.
5: For other endeavors, I've I've done a lot of voice processing processing that I feel is not scary or creepy or it doesn't evoke like a a monster movie, or it doesn't evoke, I, I, I'm like, oh no, this is this is really a beautiful way of processing a voice. And then the, the minute I play it for, you know, somebody who's, you know, not sort of an experimental musician, they're like, oh, that's so spooky. And I'm like, oh.
0: <laughs> Emily, do you have a favorite
1: scene? My favorite scene is when uh, Fatima and Hassan have an on-camera fight, because it's a wonderful moment where it begins as a normal marital fight. And it seems like it's really just about appropriate behavior towards other women versus jealousy. Those are, you know, kind of their two positions. And then it evolves into a conversation about the role of the artist in documenting life and what are the boundaries of art and what are the boundaries of life. And it's a a moment where his wife seems to see before he does um, some of the ethical challenges that are laying ahead in the road. Um, and, and I also happen to know that's her favorite scene in the film. That's what she's told me. I love that scene, too, because
0: he compliments a woman's appearance, a young woman's appearance. Mm-hmm. And in my head, when I was watching that, I was like, he shouldn't say that. Mm-hmm. And then his wife goes, you shouldn't say that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that's a theme that emerges very strongly throughout the film mm-hmm. is sort of this line between artist, observer, and active participant, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, father, filmmaker,
1: Talk to me a little bit about that conflict that comes up for Hassan. That's a common problem in journalism. It's a common problem in autobiographical filmmaking. Um, But for him, at the beginning, film was this great opportunity to document what was going on. He had, I think, almost a utopian relationship to film. And um, his wife was much more pragmatic, much more focused on making sure that film didn't get in the way of taking care of their family and their safety. And it took him a little longer to have that crisis hit. And when it does hit, it hits him really hard. Well, Sue, Emily, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank Thank you. you.
0: you so much for tuning in this was only the second episode of glitter and doom so if you liked what you heard it would really help us if you would subscribe if you would like the show wherever you get your podcasts if you would tell your friends tell your enemies tell your mom tell your enemies' mom whatever we appreciate it all thanks so much glitter and doom is made by me mackenzie fagan Ross Tuttle, Isabel Alcantara, Mira Al Rahim, Naeem Van, and Eric Hogaseg. It is executive produced by Jonathan Leaf, Sasha Mathias, and Aziz Aisham.